Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off books by forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. Amy, what do you typically think of when you hear the words grand tour? Um, Aristocratic men like Lord Byron swanning around Europe, sowing their oats. Maybe novels by Henry James, E.M. Forster, those things come to mind. Goethe. Right. And I don't think I had ever actually read anything written by a woman about her own grand tour, which is why we are excited to turn your attention, listeners, to today's lost lady, Anne Hampton Brewster. She wrote the novel St. Martin's Summer based on her experiences as a single American woman on an 18-month grand tour in the mid-19th century. And she has a particular focus on her time in Italy. Imagine if A Room with a View's cousin Charlotte had pinned her own version of that story, for example. Right. Or maybe like a real life version of Henrietta Stackpole, the newspaper correspondent from Henry James's novel, The Portrait of a Lady. And actually, you know, that has me thinking about one of our previous lost ladies, Constance Fenimore Woolson, because she also did some travel writing from Europe in the late 19th century. That's right. She was actually really good friends with Henry James, and they were palling around Italy together while he was writing The Portrait of a Lady. But let's get back to today's lost lady. With us to discuss St. Martin's Summer and tell us more about its once well-known author is Edda Madden, a professor whose most recent book is about Brewster and two of her contemporaries who lived abroad in Italy during that same period. So if you're in the mood for some armchair travel today, andiamo, we're going to Italy. Let's raid the stacks and get started. The recipient of a Fulbright Award, Dr. Edda Madden, has been a research fellow at the New York Public Library, an NEH seminar participant at the American Academy in Rome, and a two-time recipient of a Mellon Fellowship from the Library Company of Philadelphia. She teaches courses on American literature, women writers, and utopian visions as professor of English at Missouri State University. This year, her fourth book, Engaging Italy, American Women's Utopian Visions and Transnational Networks, was published by SUNY Press. Welcome to the show, Etta. We are so glad to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm super happy to be here. Always happy to talk about women writers. So let's begin the show by learning a little bit more about Anne Hampton Brewster. Her story definitely stands out as unique for a woman in the mid-19th century. She had a really amazing career for one, and we'll get to that. But first, Etta, can you tell us about Brewster's family life and education and how it may have contributed to some of her later choices in life and career? Sure, and I'll try to make this brief. Um, Anne Hampton Brewster was born in Philadelphia in 1819 into a family that descended from the Brewsters who were on the Mayflower. Anne and her older brother, Ben, were raised primarily by their mother, Maria, because their father was largely absent, making money and being involved with another woman who was the recipient of much of that money. Um, Her father also had children with that other woman. When he eventually separated from his wife, Maria, Anne was about 16, and she and her mother became dependent upon the slightly older brother, Ben, for much of their financial support. Now, before that, when Ben was still a child, a fire in their home had burned him and left scars on his face so that he came to be known as Burnt Face Brewster. 
which is said to be a challenge that pushed him to overcome and be successful. He became a U.S. Attorney General under President Chester Allen Arthur. But also, this older brother, Ben, became a kind of controlling surrogate father figure for Anne. Anne often read books that she accessed through the library that Ben Franklin established in Philadelphia, now known as the Library Company of Philadelphia. Um, one interesting point of her young adult life is that she converted from her family's Protestantism to Roman Catholicism. She also got involved with the famous actress, Charlotte Cushman. Um, Cushman was directing Philadelphia's Walnut Street Theater. And in 1842 and 1843, Anne and Charlotte began spending quite a bit of time reading together, writing poetry, discussing literature, discussing drama. Ben, the older brother, disapproved of Anne's relationship with poetry, with the theater, and especially to this Charlotte Cushman. He shut down the relationship, which he described as, quote, unnatural. A couple of years after that relationship was swelched, Anne wrote, the only being I ever truly loved or shall ever love. Oh, father above, is such love wrong? Can a feeling which seemed to elevate and refine my nature, as did that love for her, be wicked? I feel assured, though separated in this life, in another world, we shall meet and never know the wretchedness of separation. So pretty much tells how she felt about Charlotte in the 1840s. I can imagine how stifled she must have felt. You know, first of all, she had these not so great male figures in the home. Her one lifeline is this friend slash love interest, Charlotte, who she's forbidden to see. It's kind of setting up for us why she would want to hit the road. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in 1857, Brewster set out on her first trip to Europe. Do you want to tell us what actually prompted this trip? Sure. This is sort of the exciting part. When Anne's father died in 1854, Ben and Anne realized that their father had written a new will, which left everything, not to either one of them, but to the two half-brothers that were born to the woman that he later married. And so Anne and Ben entered into a legal battle over the legitimacy of their father's will. They wanted to regain what they believed had been promised to them initially. Um, but also Ben had remarried and Anne didn't want to live with either this brother whose behavior was bothering her. He was drinking a lot. He was overbearing. And she also didn't really like his wife. And so she wanted to live by herself. Now, there's a really interesting journal entry just prior to her departure in 1857 that also suggests she was separating herself not just from the legal battle, but from a lover. So she writes in the spring of 1857, it's so hard to go, to leave that which is so dear to me, all I have. Now, when I'm just feeling for the first time a real, true, strong love, for one not of my own flesh and blood, but prudence, that bitter lash, spurs me on. It is best for me to go. I prove my love by courageously renouncing the society of the one I love so dear. Wow. Now that's not Cushman. That's what? not Charlotte Cushman. Okay. Was this a journal entry or a letter to her brother? 
It's a journal entry. Oh, okay. Because I was like, why would she write her brother that? Okay, journal got entry. it. No, got it's it. a journal entry. And this whole inheritance thing, it's like she's living a Dickens novel. Absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. It still happens today. I think anybody who's dealt with Yeah, that shock. And especially as a woman and not having the ability usually to earn your own living, there's a lot at stake for her. Yes. It's this double problem, you know, leaving whoever this mysterious beloved is mm-hmm. and getting away from this horrible controversy. The silver lining, and I guess she doesn't quite maybe know it yet, is this epic trip. She heads to Europe. So set the scene for us a little. What were these 18 months like for her? You know, her first taste of real freedom. Sure. Well, let me just say that she's not traveling completely alone. She's got her dog, Beauty, a little Scotty, with her. And she also has her maid, Lena. Nonetheless, these two traveling companions don't provide quite enough protection for her from the creepy advances of a man from Missouri on board the ship for the Atlantic crossing. She refers in her journal um, to this guy as her bet noir. Apparently, he asked the captain of the ship to introduce him to Anne and then immediately offered to help her when they went ashore at Le Havre, France, which would be about two weeks after they departed. She tells him, quite frankly, that she doesn't need his help, but only after enduring his annoying advances for way too long. So once she gets settled in in Switzerland, she loves the mountains. She's able to work. She's writing her novels now. She's able to take walks in the mountains. The lake is beautiful. But when the summer sun starts to uh, decline, the days are shorter, the winds start blowing. She actually gets sick. She faces death. A priest is called in to give her last rites. She begins to realize that wintering in the Alps may not be ideal for her. So she takes advantage of an invitation and a connection to the American consulate in Naples, Robert Dale Owen and his wife, and heads to the sunny south of Italy. She spends the winter there, the spring and the early summer months, and those become the basis for the novel. Your story about the kind of lecherous guy on the crossing over, she directly inserts that into the novel. There's a complete scene where that happens to the main character. Absolutely. Except it's on a train and it's crossing from Switzerland into Italy on an overnight train. And it's it's horrible. It's horrible. And it's just a reminder that it was a daunting thing for her to set out to do. You know, we say a woman alone where she wasn't even really alone. She has her maid with her and she has the dog, but there was something of an external sign that if a woman of means was by herself, that she was fair game, perhaps. She's completely unprotected, really. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's leap right into Brewster's novel then, St. Martin's Summer. Do you want to give our listeners an overview of the plot of the novel, which I'll add here takes a little bit of time to develop, but we'll get to that later. But you want to take it away, Edda? Sure, you are right. It is not easy to describe, but simply put, there are three main settings and three main characters, all women. And there are two marriage plots that are sometimes parallel and sometimes contrasting. There are two important male characters, Philip, who's a poet, and Luigi, a well-educated Milanese man with an English mother. The settings are first Vive, Switzerland, at the Hotel of the Trois Couronnes, which I only name because it's the same place that Henry James's Daisy Miller opens. But 
Daisy Miller was published in 1878, and this novel appeared in 1866, so 12 years before that. So it's really just a reminder that James and other writers before him are choosing this sort of important watering hole in Switzerland to create this highbrow context for their novels. Um, The second setting is Naples, and most of the novel occurs there. And the third is at sea, the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. So, of course, there's travel between these three points, including the overnight train ride that we already mentioned, where the male passenger ropes one of the women. Um, Now, the three women characters who are the most important. There's Janet, who is a U.S. citizen, but she's been raised as an expat abroad. Janet is recently widowed. She's mothering her younger sister, Venetia. And then the third character is our narrator, Ottilie, or Ottilie, who is an American woman who has gone abroad to get rid of some dark loss in her past that remains mysterious throughout the novel. She is the one that's based on Brewster herself. So these two older women, Janet and Otley, and the younger Venetia, leave Veve and head south to Naples for the winter and spring. And after a glorious couple of seasons in Italy's sunny south, where the men appear and the marriage plots develop, The three women depart by water for the U.S., stopping in Palermo, Sicily, and Gibraltar, Spain. And the book closes with the three women at sea. Okay. Would you want to maybe read one of your favorite passages from the book, just to give our listeners a feel for what her writing is like? Um, Sure. It was really hard to choose a favorite passage. There is a lot of description in this novel, and the action is kind of buried. And so I selected a passage that I think demonstrates that. It also shows us the narrator Ottilie's behavior as a music lover, as a literature lover, as a woman who considers herself quite knowledgeable of what she believes are men's and women's ways. There are a lot of gender stereotypes in the novel. And it also shows Ottilie's ongoing deference to men, although she considers herself much more clever and equally intelligent as men. So it's one of the many passages that makes me really angry at the character and at Rooster, the author. So to set up the passage, the beautiful young female character, Florence, that I have not mentioned, um, she is singing a piece from the opera Othello or Otello after a dinner party. Ottilie and Philip, among others, are mesmerized by Florence's beauty as a person and also her beautiful voice. So here's the scene. Philip was leaning over the back of the lounge on which I was sitting. Reminder, I is Ottilie, giving me the benefit of his short, enthusiastic ejaculations. I looked up in his keen, bright eye as she ended the last cadenza on Cenere a Bagnar. I'm not going to sing that. <laughs> where her voice mounted finally to the upper B, resting there an instant and making a half ending in a very effective ah. Then came rippling down, full of little sobs, to the throat notes, giving the banyar on the keynote with a most touching expression of sorrow. I whispered, "'Tis a sweet whirlwind striving to get out, heaves her soft bosom, wanders round about, and makes a pretty earthquake in her breast. For one instant, Philip looked at me as if he could have worshipped me with that sublime generosity men show when you make them happy, and then electrified us all and covered dear Florence's delicate brow with the happiest blushes, 
by repeating to her as a compliment in his most impassioned and eloquent style, the whole beautiful description from Crashaw's music duel, in which is the passage I had quoted. In other words, what she had just whispered to him. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Just a couple more sentences. His superb recitation of this lovely poem created the greatest enthusiasm in our little circle. As Janet said this morning, surely there can be nothing in this world so gratifying to a man as a society triumph such as Philip experienced then. It it becomes all about the men, but yet she has these beautiful ecstasies in describing the women. And I think that shows a little bit of that. Like all the women, she describes them with just incredible, like emotional descriptions of their, their bodies, their personality, everything. But then it all ends up coming back to the men. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even Janet, who's very much like Autelie, does the same thing. You know, acknowledging what a triumph that was for Philip last night. If he was able to quote that poem that so aptly described Florence's singing. Oh, God. (laughs) She tries to make herself feel good by thinking that she's more clever and she knows how to behave and she's helping them in. Yeah. She's helping them. Yeah. And we will discuss that dynamic a little bit later, too, Mm -hmm. because it is something I'm interested in in terms of her beliefs. Yeah. And I actually had underlined that passage when I was reading and I remember that. So I'm so glad you read that one. Did you put an ug in the... (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. Um, That passage reminds me there's a lot of vibes going on in this book. There's a lot of drinking of wine. There's candles playing beautiful music, as you heard in that passage. And a lot of the book is descriptions of places that Audelie visits and the history and literature that it brings up for her and her companions. She's a walking Bedeker. But they all have a lot to say about what they're experiencing. And Audely actually notes at one point that if strangers heard their free-flowing conversations on the subjects suggested by the places they visit, that it would seem pedantic. And that made oh, me yeah. laugh out loud. And I wrote LOL next to that line. Yes, because as absolutely. a modern reader, it is a lot. My advice would be the best way to read this one might be really slowly and over time and maybe even out loud. I would even add that like an Italian wine in sips, you know, like you don't chug (laughs) your glass of wine, you sip it. There is a lot of classical talk to wade through historical accounts. And I realized I had to just let some of that go. (laughs) You know, I got to a part of like skim, skim, skim. Okay, here the story picks up again, you know. But that said, there were certain moments within those, I will call them the tour guide sections, you know, there were certain moments within those parts where she's describing something and it does just take your breath away. And I can see how readers of the day who couldn't go to these places would be fascinated by it. Um, I want to read the description of her visiting the Blue Grotto in Capri. I've never been to the Blue Grotto, but I sort of know from pictures and other people that have been, I kind of know what to expect. And so when I read this, I was like, ah, yes, that's exactly what I imagined. She writes, the opening of the cavern is so low and narrow that we had to lie flat in the boat to enter. It is to the form and peculiar position of this opening that some hagiographers attribute the fairy-like atmosphere of the grotto. They say the sea is deeply imbued with light at this entrance and emits it at every flow inside the cavern. The best hour for seeing the cave is at silent midday, the hush of noontide quiet. Then the waters are sapphire-hued, the walls of the purest blue, 
that Indian shade, which the Chinese call the blue of the heavens after a rain. And the ceiling is like the Empyrean. It was at this hour we went and seemed suddenly transported to a land of dreams. We dipped our hands in the magic stream and they became as alabaster with a blue light playing through them. With these specter-like fingers, we dashed up the waters playfully. We seemed to be tossing up liquid gems, sapphires, and bluish pearls. There was a sparkle on everything, as if a blue flame was lighting up and playing upon the glittering surface of crystal. The whole atmosphere seemed charged with blue, and the vaulted ceiling looked as if made of some azure-hued, transparent substance as clear as crystal, lighted by fire rays from above, shining down on it. So imagine reading that and not having the opportunity to go there, but she takes you there and it's a glorious description. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of her readers who are reading this, how would they have been reading it? Was it serialized? How were they getting to experience this novel? Before I answer that, let me just underscore that I do think the passage you read is some of Brewster's descriptive writing at its absolute best. But also, you have seen pictures of the grotto, and so that helps you. This novel was not serialized. Many longer novels were. It was not. And my tendency is to want to read it the way that you mentioned, by skipping over those things I'm not familiar with. So if you're not familiar with the Blue Grotto, you've seen no pictures of it, or if you don't know the music, you don't know all the churches, you don't know the royal families and their history that she names, you don't know the literary allusions. We are tempted just to skip over those. So 19th century readers may have known some of those references. But I think there's something else to consider, and that is Nathaniel Hawthorne's least praised novel, The Marble Fawn, um, his fourth novel, his last novel. It became a kind of travel guide to Rome, and it appeared while Brewster was working on this novel. So maybe she was thinking that her novel might become a kind of travel guide. I don't know. I don't have any evidence of that, but I'm just thinking about readers at the time and what what they were buying. So there was a lot of travel literature being printed and published in the 19th century. So maybe she thought it would be read as a travel guide. I think you raised a good point in that I have seen pictures of the Blue Grotto. So that makes me think maybe this would not have been as well received by people unfamiliar with Europe, but people who had taken grand tours might have had a lot of fun reading this and being like, oh, I've been there. Yeah. Reliving their experience. Yeah. And I took it when I went to Naples two different Mm -hmm. times. It was like, I'm going to follow in her footsteps and I'm going to go to all of these places that she writes about. And I'm going to read her descriptions while I'm on the spot. What was that like? exhausted me and I didn't finish. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm actually really relieved to hear you say that because I was like, I feel bad that I'm having to skip so much of this, but it is just drudgery to get through to where the characters are. It's a lot. But then, like I said, you would land on parts where you're like, oh, this is beautiful. I think that she was practicing writing a novel. It was her second novel. They've been written in close proximity to one another. I think she didn't fully understand dramatic tension and she might have been worried about her credentials. And so she inserted all of this information, this historical information, the literary allusions, the musical references in order to sort of prove herself. Um, but it sort of gets in the way. But there's also a really important activity that's happening through the writing of the novel as well, which comes out when we look at her journals. In fact, Audley, the narrator, hints at what Brewster is doing 
in the novel's opening. She sets up the novel as a fictional diary or journal. So we're supposed to imagine that we're reading Audley's journal entries of her trip abroad. And sometimes she says, I can't sleep because I'm so stimulated. And here it is 3 a.m. and I'm still writing in my journal. But an important part of this is that there's a preface inserted before the journal begins. So it's a reflection that supposedly Audley wrote after the journal was completed, but it's been inserted at the beginning. In that preface, the narrator tells us that she's rereading and looking back on her past time abroad, savoring it, if you will, the way that we look back through our photos on our phones, in order to prepare herself for what lies ahead for her future. So here's where the title St. Martin's Summer comes in, in case you're wondering. The celebration of St. Martin in Europe is a harvest festival in the late summer or the early fall. So basically, it's when people enjoy the fruits of the summer labor just before they move into the winter. And they're able to do that with knowledge of what they've gleaned from the past. And so I think when we bear in mind this approach to the novel that is a fictional journal, we may have a little more patience with what appears to be tedious writing. Um, I think the novel is a lesson in the value of writing, quite frankly. Writing a journal as a means to sift thoughts and emotions, and then rereading the journal later to gather insights, and then writing again to craft something even beyond that. So what I think Brewster was doing as she reread her journals of her trip abroad in 1857 and 58 was preparing herself for another trip to Italy. I connect the book's title, St. Martin's Summer, with utopian visions because utopia is both a perfect place and a place that never really exists. It's a dreamy, imagined perfect place in the midst of something else that's horrible. And that's what Brewster was doing. She was writing this novel after she got back to the U.S. as she reflected on that pastime in Europe. So, okay, if she's writing in preparation for wanting to return, I can totally understand that because... I wanted to be on this trip with them, you know, like when they would have dinner under the pergolas, you know, these gorgeous views of the hills, perfect balmy weather. If she had had a smartphone and was taking pictures, she would be like a successful Instagrammer. You can imagine reading it as someone who hadn't traveled and just being like, this woman is getting to travel and she has all this intellectual stimulation and beauty. And I wish that I could have that too. Yeah, she she really, really sells Naples, which usually gets a bad rap nowadays. Yeah. But those scenes are all really, really beautiful. They made me want to go back to Naples and go to all the places that she wrote about. One of my favorite parts was when Otalie launches into this whole diatribe on why women are such voracious readers. And she said, reading with us is often a mere pursuit of food for our imaginations, which are ever rising hungry from the meager meal that realities make of life's table. So it's like, we read a lot because that's all we get. We're yeah, not allowed to do absolutely. all the other stuff. You know, I yeah. loved that. But then, you know, getting back to the, the scene where Philip kind of bogarts her very smart line and she doesn't say anything about it. How do we square that? Because I know you mentioned in your book that Brewster was not really a fierce champion of women's rights. She was deferential to men. Yeah, I think she was afraid. I think she was totally afraid. Without reading it, there's another scene where there's all this manslating going on in the billiard room or something like that. And she refers to how important it is for the men to be doing all this explaining of details 
of the tunnel that's being built under the English Channel or the the pass. She just listens because she knows that's what they need. They need a woman to listen to them mansplain. And I just, ah, (laughs) how does this come out of you, Brewster? What came out of her? Because that's the way her life was. I think it's maybe residual from her early family life. As much as Ben bothered her, she also adored him when she was growing up. He was the father figure. And so it's kind of a a sick relationship that she had with him. She had the absent father. Uh, But then she also sought companionship with women to try to make up for her emotional needs as well. Um, That saying about, I'm just going to listen to the guy because that's what he needs. That reminds me of a story that Martha Gellhorn wrote about a woman on a date. And she basically says the same thing. Like, sometimes you just have to sit there and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, she says it more sarcastically. But maybe in some respects, she's like, this is the way the world is, and I'm not going to change it. So I guess I just do have to defer to them sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of many a cocktail party conversation, right? Which is one-sided. Many a date, many a first date (laughs) is one-sided conversation. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, All right. So she never married. We've talked about this sort of conflict here. Is she attracted to women? Is she in denial? What's going on with that? Yeah, well, and definitely she was attracted to women. We know that. The question is about her actions as a result of that. I think it's also important to note that she did have an early engagement in her 20s to a descendant of Thomas Jefferson, of all things. And she kind of mourned that broken engagement throughout her life. It would appear in her journals. And there are other male admirers that she refers to in her journals. Um, There's Cushman relationship. And then there was also a strong love for her friend, Mary Howell, who was back in the States. And then in Rome, she became enchanted by the sculptor Harriet Hosmer. Um, Hosmer and Brewster spent time together in Brewster's apartments. Brewster crimped Hattie's hair. She called her Hattie. They took outings together to Orvieto and to Albano. And if I may, I'd love to read again a little journal passage that Brewster wrote about uh, Harriet Hosmer. So she wrote, Hattie and I talked and talked and talked as we always do. She's very fresh and vigorous, like a clever little man. There's no pettiness in her, a deal of worldly wisdom, an immense amount of reticence, an entire freedom from trifling confidences, no feminine gushes and outbursts, no loose feminine thinking aloud. She's just a cunning, charming little man in her mode of talk and thought and intercourse with others. And in their conversation, and this is a quote, They seized the thoughts out of each other's mouths. I mean, that is a real kind of intimacy, but there's no suggestion of a physical intimacy between them in those journal entries, although the sensuality is there. There's also a very interesting relationship that I write about in the book, Engaging Italy, and that is with an English novelist, Amelia Edwards, who's visiting Rome with a female friend. Brewster describes Edwards as having, quote, fallen desperately in love with her. And in fact, Edward's letters to Brewster and her behavior caused Brewster to write in a journal, decidedly, this journal must be a locked one if I mean to put in it all the curious experiences I have. Of course, she doesn't lock it and we don't know what all these experiences are, but she does keep elaborating over Edward's with both delight and dismay. One day she loves it, one day she hates it. Um, So she's really wrestling with these reactions. She also wrote in the journal in this period, oh dear, how droll it is. Women have always fallen in love with me, always have more than men. And then she added, 
Yet I've had my full share of masculine adoration. (laughs) (laughs) So she can go back and read that later and feel good. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There's so many passages like that that I think are so telling about how she's, um, she's repressing this feeling that she has for women because of what she believes or has been taught to believe through her Christian upbringing, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic. One of those passages that she writes about is what she calls women loving women. And those three words are in quotes again and again in the journal, women loving women. She calls it unnatural. And then she writes that she has been, quote, graciously led over perils and quicksands, sometimes falling while deep in the mud, but forever holding up the borders of my mantle from soil. She also finally decides that she prefers her life alone. It's like her marriage is to her pen her career as an author. Mm-hmm. There's a sadness to her inability to really act on what she wants. And I recognize that in the character of Odalie too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's all these other romances happening in St. Martin Summer and Odalie's the one that you're like, she's the main character and she's getting nothing. She's getting sick. Yeah. yeah. You kept wanting it to happen. And then you realize it's not going to. Yeah. Poor Odalie. Right. I know. So speaking of the novel and coming back to that, Odalie receives some upsetting news from America and she makes plans to return to the States with Janet and Venetian. Is this an allusion to what actually happened to Brewster? And was it something to do with her brother and their relationship or what was going on with them and the lawsuit or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, again, one part of the book that is so autobiographical. She does throughout the book refer to the mystery, the dark loss related to family. We never find out really what that is. But what we do know from Rooster's journal is that she gets called home because the legal battle has been a failure. It was settled, but not settled the way that she had wished. So her brother did get his portion of the inheritance, but he talks the courts into allowing him to be the one to parcel money out to his sister, Anne, through the years. So she didn't have the financial support and inheritance that she had hoped for. And so she went back to the States to figure out what was next in her life. I hate that. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty disturbing. Yes, definitely. Okay, so she gets back and it's not going so good for her, um, but she does eke out a living in New Jersey, teaching music and French and writing what she can in her spare time. But behind the scenes, she was making some big plans. And this is a great part of the story. Can you tell our listeners what happened next then? Oh, yeah. This is the most exciting part for me. So she does complain in her journal about the tediousness of her teaching of her music lessons and French lessons. But she does manage to get her first novel, Compensation, published in 1860. The reviews and the sales are strong, strong enough that it goes into a second edition. And she gets an agreement with Tickner and Fields in Boston to publish St. Martin's Summer, which comes out in 1866. So again, that's almost a decade after she's actually in Naples having this wonderful experience. Here's what she writes about what this means to her. The book looks beautifully and gives me much comfort. It's something to an author to see him or herself presented so handsomely to the public as I am in this St. Martin's summer. And then I cannot but feel a little proud to show my brother that in seven or eight years time, I've been able to establish a reputation quite equal to any that his wealth or position could give me. 
and establish it too on the broken remains of health and domestic happiness and the little means of leisure that his selfish egotism and cruel temper left to me. Thank God I'm independent of him and of all he took from me, for I've learned even to be content with poverty and solitude. The heart that has youth born with it never grows old or worn out, and my heart was bathed in the fountain of spring at its birth. So slow clap. I love it. I mean, three (laughs) cheers for her. She's actually having this next act and it's wonderful. And it's vengeance on the terrible things her brother's done too. Yeah. And so this fountain of spring that's rejuvenated in her also calls up images of Charlotte Cushman from the 1840s. It's been 25 years, but she has run into Charlotte Cushman. Cushman invites her to come over to Rome and be part of a female community there. And so Anne makes plans to travel abroad. She also gets one newspaper agreement to publish regularly in the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin. She's going to send letters from Rome about what's happening there. This is so inspiring. Um, Yeah. When she got there, right, she becomes part of the Anglo-American community there. And this seems like a really incredible time for her personally and professionally. Do you feel like it was maybe the closest she got to the ideal she was trying to create in St. Martin's Summer? Absolutely. Absolutely. She's doing so well, less than a decade into her time in Rome, that she's moved into a 14-room, it's referred to as an apartment, but 14-room apartment in the Palazzo Valvane that's on the top of the Quirinal Hill. Um, she hosts these receptions to which Americans and Brits and some Italians know that they need to go if they want to see and be seen. Mm. Amazing. What a turnaround. Uh, My heart is thrilling for her. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So she's a foreign correspondent at this point. What she's writing back, has it improved from what we've seen in St. Martin's (laughs) Summer? (laughs) So um, if you look at any of her newsletters, I'm involved in a project digitizing those now, the ones that are not readily available. Um, They are a lot like her novels, but in shorter form and without the marriage plots. So she does a lot of describing of art and architecture. She goes to musical events and theaters and churches, and she writes reviews of those. She goes to these dinners with these elite guests, and she describes the decor and lists the names of all the people that are there, especially from Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. She travels outside Rome to Tuscany to Venice, and she writes descriptive travel pieces about those places. Basically, what she's doing is giving readers back in the U.S. the opportunity to armchair travel. She's giving them a taste of expat lives in Italy, but she's also, through her name dropping in those stories, she's also creating a news feed, much like our social media and tagging people. She's creating a news feed that keeps readers hooked. They want to know who is there. So she's feeding the travel industry and her own writing career by engaging U.S. readers. And it seems like, obviously, she's doing something right. They want more of what she's doing. Yeah, I think she found her niche there. I think she's better with these sort of short, you know, what we'd say more like a blog that kind of rolls from topic to topic than trying to develop dramatic tension. I can totally see that. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was able to remain in Italy for the rest of her life, um, it makes me feel like her own tale has a happy ending. Can you bring this full circle for us and talk about why you think it's important that Brewster's life and work be more well-known to us today? Sure, sure, sure. I think that Brewster is a fine example for any of us interested in women writers for a couple of reasons. 
First, she shows us how writing, whether it's journal entries, novels, news articles, blogs, that writing can help us to visualize and to actualize our dreams. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then second and equally important, her life is one of many that's fallen into the archival crevices, reminding us of how many women there are who have had successful professional careers, even if they were not radical enough to have been the superstar in their particular era. Those are the lost ladies of lit, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she does remind me a lot, especially in the later days there of Henrietta Stackpole from A Portrait of a Lady, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's who I'm picturing. Yes. Uh, Etta, thank you so much for introducing us to her and to St. Martin's Summer. We really enjoyed this time with you and having you on the show. I always enjoy it and love listening. So thanks so much. I don't know about you, Amy, but I've spent a lot of time in the past weeks scrolling through Italian villa rentals. Don't you do that anyway, all the yeah. time? Yep. Um, yeah, but same. I'm craving pasta for sure right now. And listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you would drop us a five-star review. It really helps us find new listeners. So that's all for now. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helms.